Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And for those of you who believe that your government has a history of hiding the truth from you for what they believe is in your best interest, this story is a textbook lesson which will confirm your worst fears. One year ago, we gave you the Roswell Incident Story, which tells of the breakup of a large flying craft or crafts during a violent thunderstorm over the New Mexico desert in 1947 and the subsequent government effort to squelch all factual information that pertained to that wreckage while launching a misinformation campaign about that wreckage, at the same time unlawfully imprisoning and interrogating key witnesses, unlawfully searching homes and property for pieces of wreckage, and sending in private contractors to scare the bejesus out of anyone who had seen or taken any wreckage pieces. These were all the actions of a very scared post-World War II federal government which wasn't sure from where the craft or crafts originated, what country or planet was behind this, or what was coming next. Most likely was the possibility that if any substantial parts of the wreckage could be identified, especially the power source, and re-engineered, our military could get a leg up on every enemy we had. So without saying, all this had to become top secret and fast. What bothers many Americans, though, is the methods used by our government to cover the incident up, creating five totally different versions of the breakup and describing it as a failed weather balloon test, sending hired civilian and military thugs to threaten rancher families and military personnel with their lives if they spoke at all on the matter, and carrying off key witnesses like Rance Foreman Mac Brazel, who was the first to see and collect those very unusual pieces of the wreckage and who dutifully reported it to local law enforcement. His reward was being confined on a nearby base for up to five days without access to legal representation, while forcing him to submit to interrogation and brainwashing. Our government then lied to local law enforcement, overstating the danger it would cause our country if they or any other witnesses spoke up about what they had seen, and created a misinformation program to get rid of the press by coming up with a story about how a weather balloon had come down, scattering pieces of wreckage over a mile of barren high desert. They illegally confiscated tapes of key witness testimony, which were in the possession of the local radio station. They tore apart private property in an effort to find hidden pieces of wreckage, and were just getting started. But I think you get the point. That was a bit of overreach for what they described as being some balloon pieces. 
Wooden struts, kite string, and tinfoil. Wouldn't you think? Mac Brazel and others didn't find weather balloon wreckage on that high desert. They found hundreds of pieces of metal wreckage strewn about, a strange metal that you could crush into a ball in your hand and then watch wide-eyed as it resumed its original shape. There were also support struts made of a similar substance. There was no tinfoil, no balloon pieces, no balsa kite struts, as was pictured soon after in a carefully staged photo-op done in the office of a high-ranking military officer whose job it was to kill the UFO story, producing a photo-op and story which announced the crash of some top-secret weather balloons. And that story was built on shifting sand. It would change four more times in the next 20 years. The wreckage, it is surmised, must have been a section of a flying craft that was literally blown off when lightning struck it as it passed through a very violent thunderstorm over Corolla, New Mexico on the first week of July, 1947. The craft itself and its occupants were found nearly 30 miles south of there and closer to Roswell. This site was quickly cordoned off by the U.S. government. The bodies were removed, and the portion of wreckage believed to be the power source was sent to a top-secret facility at Wright-Patterson Field in Ohio, while other pieces were sent to Washington and Army Air Force Command in Texas. We shared many of the details of the crash and cover-up in Part 1, but we saved the story of what they found in that wreckage for Part 2, and more information has come out thanks to actual witnesses who are or were getting up there in age and wanted to break their silence for the sake of telling the truth, as well as writer-researchers such as Thomas J. Carey and Donald R. Schmidt, authors of Witness to Roswell, who are considered to be the top experts dealing with the Roswell story and cover-up. And a grand cover-up it was and has been, from that morning on July 7, 1947, when the New Mexico newspaper the Roswell Daily Record reported that the Roswell Army Air Force Base had successfully retrieved a flying saucer. As you can imagine, that made all the West Coast papers and most of the East Coast papers before the report given by Colonel Blanchard at Roswell Army Air Force Base, who had seen no reason at the time why he shouldn't report the truth, was squelched by Blanchard's CO, General Ramey, at 8th Air Force Headquarters in Fort Worth, Texas. Few stories have ever been pulled backwards and put through a shredder as fast as that one was. It would take decades for the truth to come out, and that was like pulling teeth, so well had the truth been suffocated and the fear of reprisal been applied. Today, in Roswell Part 2, we're focusing on the cover-up and telling what really happened at Roswell according to the research provided from hundreds of witness testimonies. Today, the casual reader can Google Roswell and still not get the right story, thanks to the disinformation campaign that began almost immediately after Colonel Blanchard's report hit the papers. To illustrate this, I'll give you an example. Look up the Roswell UFO incident. From beginning to end, you'll see quotes from many of the key witnesses, like Ranch Foreman Mac Brazel, quotes that were literally forced out of them by the military after their families and livelihood had been threatened. The Mac Brazel who not only discovered the debris field, but discovered what is called Crash Site 2, with actual alien bodies, was not the same Mac Brazel after five days of military interrogation, after which he was brought by the military to the local media to read a report that the military had prepared for him. This all might sound over the top to you now, but once you hear the story to follow, you'll understand. You'll understand some other basics as well. Yes, the craft was not of earthly origin. Yes, it had occupants. Really, that shouldn't send people careening off of cliffs or jumping out of buildings or dialing 911. Get over it, folks. We've all known for some time. 
"'It's just that there's still a significant portion of us "'who don't want to admit it. "'When our 1001 Heroes interview friend Dr. Stanton Friedman, "'the nuclear test engineer turned UFO researcher, "'interviewed Jesse Marcel, "'the intelligence officer for the 509th Bomb Group, "'back in 1978, "'and Marcel admitted that what he saw was not of this earth. "'That began to pry the lid off the Roswell cover-up. "'I say began because a very tight lid had been placed on Roswell.' The 509th Bomb Group in Roswell was a super-secret military operation in that it was responsible for housing and delivering our atomic weapons, and security and tight lips were maintained at all times. When they assisted in collecting debris from the crash of a UFO, or in transporting alien bodies to Washington, D.C. and Wright-Patterson Airfield, these were not people who were going to talk about it. It would take years of prying to get small puzzle pieces out of them, and the same went for the civilians in the area who were involved because fear of reprisal had been hammered into them so well. As UFO researchers pried, the Air Force changed their initial weather balloon accounts every few years to try to accommodate the media and counter the stories that were inching out. One of the best ones occurred in 1997, as the government tried to counter the eyewitness stories of alien bodies having been found in the wreckage of the Roswell UFO, with the story that those were actually crashed dummies being tested in preparation for our upcoming space program. At this press conference, the Air Force's explanation went over like a comedy routine. Reportedly, members of the press corps were holding their sides from the laughter generated. Those who had done their homework knew that Air Force crash dummies were six feet tall, not three-and-a-half to four-foot grayish beings with very different heads and bodies, and that the Air Force didn't test those dummies, which began being dropped using parachutes in New Mexico in the early 1960s. One quick reminder for all of you who by your own choice remain on the fence regarding the crash of a flying disc near Roswell, New Mexico. On Tuesday, July 8, 1947, at 11 a.m. Mountain Time, Roswell Airfield Commanding Officer Colonel William Blanchard announced the recovery of a flying disc. That made the Western papers the same day. By 4.30 p.m. Central Time that day, General Roger Ramey, commander of the 8th Air Force, and Blanchard's senior officer, presented a very different story to the press, claiming that a Rawin target device suspended by a neoprene rubber balloon had come down near Roswell. Rawin spelled R-A-W-I-N, a Rawin target device. Thanks to that neoprene rubber test balloon, the U.S. Army Air Force abducted and detained ranch foreman Mac Brazel, the first man on the scene of the debris field in crash site and crash site two, and held him in a secure room on base for four to five days, while interrogating him as to what he had seen and putting enough fear in him to change his story. He was denied legal representation while they searched his ranch for wreckage, as well as the ranch house and surrounding buildings for anything he might have squirreled away. Two cordons were placed around the ranch using armed soldiers positioned at high points to prevent any unauthorized citizens from entering the ranch area. Special unscheduled flights arrived from Washington, D.C., White Sands, Fort Bliss, and Kirkland to transport military officers and wreckage. The wreckage was sent off to Fort Worth, where Army Air Force Command was located, as well as Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, Andrews Air Force Base in D.C., and Alamogordo Nuclear Testing Facility. All this is documented. Ask yourself, were those planes transporting pieces of a weather balloon? Not likely. We don't know how many people Mac Brazel shared the details of the crash with before or during his long truck ride to Roswell to talk to the sheriff. 
but we do know he called reporter Frank Joyce, who was attached to KOB Radio in Albuquerque. It was an off-air conversation in which Brazel said, "'Who's going to clean all that stuff up?' He was angry because his job as a foreman of the Foster Ranch was to feed the sheep that grazed all around the ranch, and sheep are known to eat anything. Mac was undoubtedly wondering how he was going to explain hundreds of dead sheep to the ranch owner. Joyce asked, "'What stuff?' And Brazel answered, I don't know. Maybe it's from one of those flying saucer things. Joyce suggested that Mac call the Air Force Base. They probably had something to do with it. Then Brazel became notably upset and repeated, Oh my God! What am I going to do? The stench is horrible. Joyce responded, What stench? What are you talking about? They're dead, said Brazel. Who's dead? The little people. Little creatures. "'What little creatures? Where did you find them?' "'Somewhere else,' Brazel said, to which Joyce answered, "'Well, you know the military. They're always experimenting with monkeys and things.' And by that time Brazel was screaming at him over the phone, "'They're not monkeys. They're not human.' And then he slammed the phone down. KGFL picked up Brazel and took him to the home of station owner Walt Whitmore, where they recorded Brazel's story, which covered everything." his finding of the debris field, and his finding of the wreckage on site too, and the bodies located inside and out of the wreckage. And within hours, the FCC was on the phone to Whitmore and over at KOB, demanding that they not release any testimony from Brazel, that this involved national security, that any release would result in the loss of their licenses. The last time Frank Joyce saw Mac Brazel was when he was being transported out of KGFL by two armed guards, after being forced to recant his story. Joyce approached him after the tape session, telling Mac, "'That's not the story you told us. "'And what about the green men you told me about?' Brazel, looking extremely upset, remained tight-lipped, with one exception. As he left the building, he turned back to Joyce and said, "'They weren't green.' Bessie Brazel Schreiber, Mac Brazel's daughter, was one of the Air Force's star witnesses in their July 94 Project Mogul report by agreeing that the Air Force had lost a high-altitude balloon back in July of 1947. The truth was, as she finally admitted years later, that she had helped her dad gather up fallen weather balloons on a number of occasions, so she knew what balloon wreckage looked like, but she never saw the debris field, which was 10 miles from the Foster Ranch where Brazel and his kids lived. Her older brother Bill said, after her testimony, she wasn't even there. Only later did she come to the conclusion that the wreckage was another occurrence altogether, as she put it. Her dad told her, as he was being grabbed by the military and escorted out of the ranch, "'Don't believe everything you hear about me in the next few days.'" Major Marcel, the intelligence officer who had participated in not only the removal of the wreckage, but in a photo op with General Ramey in Fort Worth, showing the remains of a tinfoil target and a balloon, was kept out of the press conference that followed his photo op, and kept in seclusion for the next 24 hours, finally being allowed to return to New Mexico and home to his wife and son, Jesse Jr. He had shown both of them a piece of the wreckage, and upon returning home, he told them that he was no longer allowed to talk to them about the wreck. The day after returning home, he received a visit from counterintelligence officer Captain Sheridan Cavett. Marcel asked Cavett for a report on what had been found during his absence. Cavett, who had accompanied Marcel on his first trip to the wreckage sites, told him he didn't know what Marcel was talking about. Marcel said, Yes, you do. I outrank you. I want the report.
Cavett replied, "'Sorry. I take my orders from Washington now. If you don't like it, take it up with them.' The two had been close friends. They and their wives would get together weekly for bridge. But all that was over. In later years a number of Marcel family members have come forward and admitted that Jesse told them he had seen alien bodies at the crash site. There, he said, they looked white and powdery. He described them as pygmy-sized alien bodies. In their book, Witness to Roswell, Carrie and Schmidt give a fascinating account of how New Mexico's newly elected Lieutenant Governor Joe Montoya became one of the witnesses to the alien bodies on the day of their delivery to Roswell Base on July 7, 1947. The crash site was located 35 miles northwest of the town of Roswell. The crash debris site, and I'll give you some more explanation on the three sites involved, was located 35 miles northwest of the town of Roswell. The base is just south of Roswell. July 7th was the day that the first set of alien bodies was delivered, along with, very possibly, one live alien. A site they call Site 3 had been discovered accidentally by a team of archaeologists who then telephoned the sheriff's office and the fire station in Roswell from a service station in Mesa. Keep in mind there were no cell phones back in those days, so you had to go out and find a public telephone. The bodies were brought to Hangar P3, today known as Building 84, on the east end of the base. The most accepted version of Montoya's presence on the base comes from two brothers, Reuben and Pete Anaya, who were involved in Montoya's campaign. On that day, July 7th, Reuben was informed by his father that he had received a call. Reuben didn't have a phone in his home. The call coming from Joe Montoya, who was at the base and wanted to see Reuben now. Reuben then went to his father's house and returned the call to see what Montoya wanted. Montoya sounded panicky. He said he was at the big hangar. He asked Reuben to bring his car and pick him up, saying he had to, quote, get the hell out of here. Reuben quickly returned home found his brother Pete with two friends, and all four jumped into the car and headed for the base. Reuben, acting on Montoya's instructions, took the long way around once he got on the base, which was no problem as he worked as a cook there and his car had ID. They had arrived at the water tower that loomed over the big hangar, and which still stands there today, but found their route blocked by guards, both MP and local city police. As their car came into view of the hangar, the side door of the hangar opened, and Montoya came running out to the car, looking pale and scared. "'Come on, come on, let's go, get the hell out of here,' Montoya was saying as he jumped in. Reuben asked him if he wanted to be driven to the Nixon Hotel in Roswell, where he was staying, but Montoya said, "'No, just take me to your house. I need a drink.' On the way there, Montoya was physically upset and shaking, while he repeated, "'They're not human. They're not human.' Over and over again." After a while, he regained his composure, and when they reached the house, he collapsed on the sofa. They handed him a glass of scotch, which he polished off, and then he asked for a bottle of Jim Beam, and he took three huge gulps from that. He then was able to calm down and shared his story with the men gathered in the room. He said there was a flying saucer. He said, they say it moves like a platter, a plane without wings. I don't know where it's from. Then he said that he'd seen four little men. One was alive. They were short, he said, skinny, with big eyes shaped like teardrops. The mouth was real small, like a knife cut across a piece of wood, he said, and they had large heads. They were stretched out upon a table which had been brought over from the mess hall. He said, I know that one was alive because I could hear him moaning. There were doctors and technicians spread around the table. 
Montoya said he got close enough to see that their skin was pale white and that they had no hair. Each of them wore a silvery, tight-fitting one-piece flight suit. They had four long, thin fingers on each hand, and they had large, bald heads and big eyes. After telling his story, Montoya fell asleep on the sofa. They watched him twitching and shaking and calling out in his sleep. When he woke up, he asked Reuben to contact the hotel and have them send a car over to pick him up. They stood in silent wonderment as Montoya entered the car and left. The next morning, they went to the Nixon Hotel to see him and asked if he was okay. He was much calmer, they said, and told them never to discuss what he had said to anyone else. He told them that the little men were sent to the hospital and that the wreckage had been shipped to Texas. Later, the Anayas received a visit from Sheriff Wilcox, who had a message for them. He told them in no uncertain terms that if they spoke a word of this to anyone, their entire family, including their children, would be killed. This is consistent with other testimony indicating Wilcox's threats to the Roswell populace. Sheriff Wilcox had taken it upon himself to be the enforcer for the Air Force. Later, State Senator Chavez would tell the Anayas to keep their mouths shut and that Montoya had been lying to them. He then told them that it was a secret project involving Russia and Germany. It was a national security matter. And for that reason, they had to remain quiet. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. General Ramey, at 8th Air Force Headquarters in Fort Worth, Texas, was having a field day handling press inquiries and giving them all slightly different versions of the recovery effort for the Rawin balloon-borne radar targets, which he described as needing top security. I'm looking at a picture he provided of a balloon launch showing uniformed men standing calmly on a grassy square, two of them holding a big balloon, maybe six feet wide and six feet high. One man's holding a string which attaches the balloon to a folded piece of tinfoil at his feet. A fifth man in a mechanic's uniform stands watching, hands on hips. The small group, obviously posed for a photo, looks as if they're about to launch a kite. There's nothing impressive or top secret about it. Yet the record clearly shows that portions of the wreckage required the use of an 18-wheeler to transport it back to the base. Why would it take an 18-wheeler to carry a balloon and a piece of tinfoil? The cover-up was laughable and remains so today. The 18-wheeler, by the way, which consisted of a truck cab pulling a military flatbed, upon returning from the crash site to the base, returned to the center of Roswell on Main Street at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, visible to everyone. It was escorted by armed MPs in jeeps. A huge tarp covered what many described as an egg-shaped object standing anywhere between four and six feet high. One corner of the tarp had lifted enough to give people a view of a silver object beneath. In later years, when the fear of talking subsided, everyone from the paperboy to shopkeepers to roofers working along Main Street described the convoy to researchers. After 1978, when the story began to open up, many who participated in the wreckage recovery effort began to leak stories, and there were hundreds of eyewitness testimonies on record providing details on everything from the evidence gathered at the debris site to the actual wreckage sites to the removal and later study of the bodies that were recovered at the crash sites. To put it in perspective for you, the craft was hit by lightning and a large piece of it, possibly the outer shell, was exploded into small fragments. These metal fragments covered a remote piece of ranch land hundreds of yards long. This was the Foster Ranch, on which Mac Brazel worked as a foreman, and it was about 35 miles north and east of Roswell. But the actual craft didn't fall there. It continued flying another 20 or so miles until it finally crashed. 
This was the crash site, much closer to Roswell, discovered by a group of geologists, one of the two sites which contained bodies. There was a hospital, as you would expect, at Roswell Army Air Force Base. When the bodies arrived, there was a huge influx of unfamiliar doctors and nurses there waiting to receive the bodies. MPs were posted all around the perimeter of the hospital, and all regular staff were returned to their living quarters. The hospital administrator, Lieutenant Colonel Harold Warren, who had served as a medic during the worst action in World War II, had his duties sidelined, but was still present at the hospital to oversee. The hospital did not have a morgue. They used the Ballard Funeral Home in Roswell for that. Ballard received a call asking for the availability of children's caskets. The mortician was questioned about the availability of embalming fluids, which would be the least detrimental to tissue and bodily fluids. Dr. Warren's secretary was Miriam Bush, a graduate of New Mexico State College at Las Cruces, and he kept her close to him that day, including her in a short visit to the examination room, in which she saw a number of small bodies on gurneys placed in the middle of the room. She cried out, totally unprepared for the sight, saying, "'Oh, my God! They're children!' But soon she saw that their heads and faces, which weren't covered with white linen like their bodies were, were brownish-gray, and that they had large heads with big eyes. When she got home, she repeated the story of what she had seen to her father, and she cried. She told him one of them moved. He told her he'd been hearing all the talk around town about the crash of a spaceship and the bodies inside it, but now it was hitting close to home. To the people of Roswell, this must have seemed like a science fiction movie come to real life. They didn't know if they should be afraid or not. And was this just the beginning? Would there be an attack? And why here, where the 509th Bomb Group was located, in nowhere New Mexico? By the next evening, sitting with her family, and having suffered a full day of receiving warnings to keep her mouth shut, she told her brother and family that she was instructed to never say another word to anyone about what she had seen. And she was truly, deeply scared, even paranoid, according to her brother. And that paranoia continued throughout her life. The government thugs had done their job. She married within the next year and moved to California. But later that marriage fell apart, and her relationships with others worsened as her paranoia, especially the fear that she was being watched and monitored, grew. In December of 1989, she checked into a motel north of San Jose using her sister's name, and according to the coroner, committed suicide by wrapping a plastic bag around her head. His report did not account for the scratches and bruises all over her arms. Maybe she was being watched. That seemed to be a pattern with the number of personnel who had been close to the Roswell experience. Sometimes the government has unlimited funds when it comes to matters that they believe to be of national security. How far would they go to keep an innocent nurse from talking about what she had seen? One obvious way to scatter military witnesses was to transfer them to remote points around the world, putting them far away from any questioning media. In 1994, the Secretary of the Air Force issued a proclamation that absolved anyone connected with Roswell in 1947 from any guilt or loss of pension in the event they wanted to provide testimony about what they had seen or experienced. But the number of witnesses, and there are fewer every day, that have taken their knowledge of what they witnessed then to their deathbed is still surprising. Many did share with family members. Some even wrote deathbed confessions and signed affidavits gladly. And dozens have come forward with the full story which, when pieced together, provides a chillingly accurate picture of what happened in Roswell in July of 1947. 
There are actually three sites connected with the breakup and crash of a saucer-shaped craft in a severe thunderstorm over Corolla, New Mexico, on July 3, 1947. One site was the debris field located a few miles from the Foster Ranch that Mac Brazel lived and worked on. It is surmised that the outer shell of the craft exploded after being struck by lightning, sending thousands of metal pieces down over a couple hundred yards of desert floor and pastureland. The next site was the one found by Mac Brazel and his seven-year-old neighbor's son, D. Proctor, as they followed the trail of fragments a few more miles south and eastward. This site contained two or three alien bodies and a piece of the craft, possibly a pilot or crew module. These were the bodies that Brazel had spoken of while on the phone with the radio announcer. The third site was located about 30 miles southeast of Number 2, and now much closer to Roswell. Mac Brazel didn't know about this site. It contained the remainder of the crew and the largest portion of the alien craft. In Roswell Part 1, we described the finding of this site by an archaeological team, which promptly sent one of their assistants to the nearest phone booth to call it in. We mentioned earlier that the government, at least back in those days, had no problem in hiring outside contractors to threaten military and civilian witnesses to the Roswell happenings. But the military is also provisioned at assigning the right people to the right task. In this situation, they needed thugs who wouldn't mind terrorizing women and children as well as grown men. Their tactics left innocent people fearing for their lives. Frankie Dwyer was a 12-year-old schoolgirl in July of 1947, and her father was a crew chief with the Roswell Fire Department. They were the ones who responded to the call from the archaeology team at the third site, and they were the first on the scene. She was waiting at the fire station for her dad to come back when a local highway patrol officer named Walter Scroggins walked in, carrying a balled-up piece of the wreckage in his hand. He said, Watch this, guys, and dropped the ball of silver metal on a table. And as they all watched, it unfurled and shaped itself into a flat sheet of quicksilver in about two seconds, like nothing on this earth that they'd ever seen. A couple of days later, Frankie was at home with her mother when a heavy knock came at the front door. There stood a man with wide shoulders and a dark complexion. He asked for Frankie. Behind him were two MPs. When Frankie came into the room, the two MPs escorted Mrs. Dwyer out of the room, and the big man started questioning Frankie, wanting to know what she had seen at the fire station. She answered honestly, and he started slamming his billy club down into one hand. In a thick New York accent, he said, You didn't see anything. You got that? If you say anything, not only will you be killed, but the rest of your family will be killed too. There's a big desert out there. No one will ever find you. Then the two MPs returned Mrs. Dwyer back to Frankie, and the three men left. The thug was very probably ex-Brooklyn policeman Arthur Philbin, who was a security officer with the 2390th Air Service Squadron, which was part of the 509 Bomb Group in 1947. He ran the guardhouse on the base, and was known for being an all-around tough. Years later, a picture was shown to Frankie Dwyer, showing a group of men, and she ID'd him as the one who had terrorized their family. Chavez County Sheriff George Wilcox was also known to be heavy-handed when it came to dealing with the citizens of Roswell. He began delivering death threats to anyone who talked about the wreckage or the bodies. One of those families he threatened was the Anias family, whose members had rescued Joe Montoya from the big hangar. Then there was Hunter Penn, an Air Force officer with a pension for threatening people with an ice pick. 
The military brought him to Roswell in the weeks after the Roswell crash to ensure the continued silence of the ranchers northeast of Roswell. He did his job well. He threatened their families with death and demanded that they turn in any artifacts they'd found. It sounds kind of over the top for a weather balloon, doesn't it? But people are going to believe what they want to believe. In years following, Hunter Penn's foster daughter Michelle said she was fearful of her father, who was an alcoholic and who had beaten her mother, and who demanded that his daughter address him as sir at all times. She said he would brandish a military pickaxe when visiting the ranchers, and believed that he might have used one while stationed at Roswell. So what do we learn from all this? It's good to be supportive of our government, and especially our country, but don't ever expect them to tell you the truth about what's going on, because you're not going to get it. Americans are good people overall, and some, when it comes to telling the truth, aren't going to be scared off or intimidated. If it wasn't for those people, we might have never discovered the truth about Roswell. And lastly, we could thank the researchers and the writers, like Stanton Friedman, William Moore, Carl Flock, Kevin D. Randall, Thomas Carey, and Donald Schmidt, for years of painstaking research, which includes the gathering of first- and second-hand witness testimony and the placing of many small puzzle pieces together to form a very accurate story of what really happened at Roswell. In terms of the number of first- and second-hand witnesses that have provided testimony, there have been hundreds, and almost all the accounts back each other up. Smoking guns have been produced with regard to memos found in both FBI and military files referring to the events surrounding Roswell. Witness affidavits testifying to recovery efforts, the transport of wreckage and bodies, and the witnessing of medical personnel working on alien bodies exists. One might think it would be impossible for the government to cover up an event of the size and scope that the Roswell crash was. It took some mighty effort to do just that, and to get the news media off their backs with the use of a thorough and ongoing disinformation campaign. It does make you wonder what similar campaigns are being used today to cover up government actions. I'll toss out a few ideas. The safety of vaccines. Climate change. The urgency of climate change. The real need for a huge increase in illegal immigrants. If we care so much, why not allow the entire world to emigrate to the U.S.? Why stop at just South America? There's so much we don't know about who's at the top pulling the strings and what they have in mind for America. Can we learn from history? Stories like Roswell at least help us to open our eyes and minds. Ask yourself, why were there so many armed guards used to transport a balloon attached to a piece of tinfoil? And for that matter, why did it take an 18-wheeled flatbed to bring the remains of a balloon to the base? Why were so many civilians and military personnel threatened to keep their mouths shut? Especially when balloons were being sent up regularly all over that region, and they were. Why was Mac Brazel imprisoned and interrogated for four to five days without legal representation? Why was he interrogated at all? Why did Colonel Blanchard release the original story of the recovery of a downed flying saucer to the newspapers if it never happened? Why did the FCC threaten to pull radio station licenses? Why did the government illegally confiscate the tapes of the Mac Brazel interview from the radio station? It'll take a lot of convincing to get me to believe that the first moon landing was staged in 1969, or that 9-11 didn't happen as we believe it did. So I don't jump on every conspiracy bandwagon. But Roswell? Yes, I think that one passes the reality test. Way too much effort was spent on behalf of the U.S. government to marginalize and disinform people. Way too many people witnessed it. 
"'The Roswell story has many naysayers and critics, "'and you know their names. "'They appear in force with every sensational story. "'Sometimes they're right. "'Sometimes they're wrong. "'They sell copy doing this, "'while criticizing believers and researchers "'for doing the same thing. "'In the case of Roswell, "'it's very obvious that an unidentified flying craft "'constructed of unusual metals "'came down in pieces in New Mexico "'in July of 1947.' Bodies not at all like human bodies were found in the wreckage. It happened soon after World War II and the wartime detonation of two atomic bombs on Japan, bringing this Earth into the nuclear age. Assuming that in this wide universe there are other civilizations, which is a very safe assumption, according to most of today's top scientists, there exists the possibility that the Earth's reaching the nuclear age was noticed by at least some of those advanced civilizations that keep track of what's going on in the universe. It can be assumed that they began making exploratory missions to the Earth to find where those weapons were being stored. And New Mexico was a favorite spot, with Roswell Air Force Base, with Alamogorda, with White Sands. And this increased UFO activity generated an increase in sightings of unidentified flying objects in the U.S. beginning in the years directly after 1945, enough so that the Air Force instituted Project Blue Book in order to classify all those sightings. A special call-out here to the family and memory of nuclear physicist and author Stanton Friedman, who graciously gave us interview time in recent years past. He was the one who broke the Roswell story wide open in 1978 with Jesse Marcel's testimony. May you rest in peace, Stanton. You handed me the torch of reason and made me a believer. There are more great stories out there, among them being the Randallsheim Forest UFO sighting in England in 1980, an event which occurred just outside RAF Woodbridge, which was being used at that time by the U.S. Air Force, and we'll get to that story one day soon. There's also the story of British computer expert Gary McKinnon, who hacked into American military and NASA files between 2001 and 2002, seeking proof of UFO cover-ups. This ignited a decade-long effort by the U.S. to have him extradited, and left some top intelligence analysts in Britain saying, We think thou doth protest a little too much. McKinnon was an admitted disruptor, calling himself Solo, and his actions did cost the Americans nearly a million dollars worth of damage trying to repair what he had done. Then there's Project MJ-12, Majestic 12, the top-secret U.S. investigative project set up to collect data on UFOs outside of the public project called Project Blue Book, which itself gathered information on over 12,000 sightings between 1952 and 1969. Of those 12,000 sightings, it should be noted, 22% remained unsolved, and it was likely that Majestic 12 concerned itself with these. The discovery of this top-secret U.S. government cabal, which consisted of 12 top U.S. officials who were authorized by President Truman, directed, it is believed, all U.S. efforts to conceal the facts of the Roswell incident, as well as determine how the recovered alien technology could best be used, and determine the future of how the U.S. should engage with extraterrestrial life in the future. Our friend, Dr. Stanton Friedman, who was involved in the MJ-12 controversy from the start, believed that the MJ-12 documents which became the center of the controversy were real, and argued that the U.S. government had been conspiring to cover up their knowledge of a crashed UFO, the Roswell UFO, since July of 1947. We will cover the MJ-12 story one of these days soon. One last note to leave you with. According to Steven Spielberg, Following a special screening of his 1982 movie E.T., 
an unsmiling President Reagan is reputed to have said, There are a number of people in this room who know that everything on that screen is probably true. Now, Reagan did have a humorous side. Spielberg wrote it off as a joke. But others who knew Reagan well are fairly sure that there was more than a grain of truth in that statement. Thanks for joining us for Roswell Part 2 at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We appreciate reviews, especially from you Apple listeners, and we love our patrons who support us monthly through patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. And we do have some recent reviews we'd like to share with you. Very enjoyable and informative. I'm going out west this summer and plan to visit the site of the Battle of the Little Bighorn. I wanted to familiarize myself with the battle a little more, so I searched for podcasts about it. Most just gave the basics. But 1001 went super in-depth. It was by far the best I've found. I've listened to those three episodes about four or five times now. I've since become a regular listener and look forward to each new episode while also continuing to catch up on older ones. Down from Ben Q 72 Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one. Great entertainment. Five stars. Wow, wow, wow. Such a great podcast. Down from Philip, D.A., Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one. Favorite history podcast. Five stars. Consistent in every way. Soothing. His tone of voice and slight dry comedy remind me of my dad, LOL. So informative and interesting. I could keep going, but I'm too busy listening. Down from Shanty Shortness, Apple Podcast, Canada. And this one, great podcast, five stars. I love history podcasts and listen to them daily. They make tasks go by so much faster. I've been especially enjoying 1001 Podcast recently because Mr. H has been diligent about steering clear of current politics. Thank you. I appreciate so much that you state facts, period, and let the listener decide what their opinions will be. Keep up the good work. Down from Prairie A.H. Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, We Die Alone, five stars. We Die Alone is one of the most amazing World War II stories you'll ever read. The story's right up your alley. Love your podcast, Frank. Down from Frank the Taylor, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Deborah Who. John tells good stories, but Karen Allen starred in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Debbie Allen was in fame. Down from J Cash Coach, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this, like a fine bourbon, five stars. The intro music hooks you straight away. Then you sink down into a great fireside telling of many a great story. Well-researched and like a smooth bourbon. John delivers his histories and tales in a unique storytelling way. All the best, Jeff Hertfordshire, U.K. Jeff MB 77, Apple Podcast, Great Britain. And this one, amazing. Like my grandfather telling me stories. Five stars. No offense meant by this title, but that's how this show feels like. I look forward to all of your shows. Thanks, John. That one from HBC76, Apple Podcast US. And this one, branching out. Five stars. I've listened to all the 1001 Heroes episodes and very much look forward to the new ones. While waiting for the next episode, I tried some of the classic stories, and I got hooked on those too. That's 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Quality storytelling works across a myriad of topics, and John proves that with all his podcasts. Great job. Keep them coming. Pistol Pete 92, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very much, Apple listeners, for, for sending these reviews. I know it takes a little bit of time and effort, and that's appreciated so much. It helps new listeners find us every day. Well, everyone, that's it for this week's story on 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. 
be sure to catch our new episode at 1001 Classic Short Stories. And our continuing stories at 1001 Stories for the Road, where we're doing a World War I novel called Mr. Standfast, and 1001 Greatest Love Stories, where we're doing Anne of Green Gables, as well as 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre, and 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories and the Best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, where we're doing Arthur Conan Doyle's second Sherlock Holmes novel, called The Sign of the Four. Very interesting story. Give that a try. That's over at 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories. Also, you can catch Stanton Friedman's interview, as well as all of our other interviews, which we house at 1001 History's Best Storytellers. Look that up on Apple or whatever Android site you're using. It's 1001 History's Best Storytellers. Until next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. And by the way, that interview with Stanton Friedman is called Talking UFOs with Nuclear Physicist Stanton Friedman. And I'm going to offer a little piece of it here, and also place that archived episode up to play behind this one, Sunday night. So here's a piece from that interview. Do UFOs exist? Yes, they do, according to noted ufologist Stanton Friedman. And furthermore, our government does a great job covering up their existence. The following is a two-part interview with nuclear physicist and legendary ufologist Stanton Friedman, who has authored a number of bestsellers on the UFO phenomenon and was the first civilian investigator to blow the lid off the Roswell UFO cover-up. Mr. Friedman worked for years on classified government projects involving experimental aircraft and has devoted the past 30 years to investigating and sharing UFO knowledge. Besides having appeared in dozens of radio and TV documentaries, he has lectured at over 600 colleges and universities around the world. We are introducing this two-part special as a prelude to our series, The Year of the UFOs, the first episode of which is called The Braxton County Monster, which is following right behind this release by about a day. The quality of this interview is not as stellar as we would have liked, possibly due to Mr. Friedman's location in New Brunswick, but regardless of the scratches, you will find some very interesting conversation. We're introducing this two-part special as a prelude to our series, The Year of the UFOs, the first episode of which is called The Braxton County Monster, which is following one day behind this release. And now, Stanton Friedman. Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We have a very special guest here today to discuss the UFO events of 1952. Our guest's name is Stanton Friedman, and it's not an exaggeration to say that he's one of the best-known and best-respected authors and researchers on UFO phenomenon in the world today. He's a nuclear physicist, author, and lecturer who has spoken at over 600 colleges and universities worldwide and appeared on literally hundreds of TV and radio programs ranging from Unsolved Mysteries to Larry King and everything in between. When he worked as a nuclear physicist for GE, Westinghouse, and others, he worked on highly advanced, classified projects that dealt with aircraft development, fission and fusion rocket propulsion, and various nuclear power plants for space and terrestrial applications. He has devoted decades to researching the UFO phenomenon and was the first civilian investigator to investigate the Roswell incident, breaking that cover-up wide open. And he's written extensively on what really happened there, as well as our government's cover-up on the matter. We're preparing a special episode on Roswell with Stanton Friedman for the weeks to come. Stanton Friedman, 
Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We're very glad to have you with us today, and we're counting on you to give us the story on UFOs in 1952. Why weren't we told about the UFO wars over Washington? What went on? And how did all this connect with Flatwoods? Boy, all of that in an hour? <laughs> it, it's, I found out about this years ago. I've been to Flatwoods three times. I have talked to a number of the witnesses. I spoke with Frank as recently as last week, and he would like to have come on today, but he's got a prior commitment. Uh, Washington was the center of the universe, you know, uh, from a lot of people's viewpoint. The question is often asked, why don't they just, the aliens just land on the White House lawn? Uh, you know, kind of a silly question. The White House is a no-fly zone, as a matter uh, you got to go back a little bit to understand that the Cold War w was in action. And, you know, it's the same thing. With the Roswell incident happening, it was perfectly clear that there were alien visitors. We had wreckage, we had bodies, the, the whole kit and caboodle. On the other hand, you have to say, how, how did we dare to go public with that? We don't know what they want. We know that they have flight capabilities well beyond ours, but we don't know what their intention is or anything like that. So the, the, the the country couldn't go public, I don't think. I mean, I'm not one for secrecy. I had a clearance for 14 years. But there are times when you have to say it's the lesser of evils to keep the public out of the picture. And uh, we have a long history of doing highly classified work. In the process of making the A-bomb, for example, we built a facility that was a mile long to separate isotopes of uranium. This is during the Second World War. And it used, I mean, a mile long, pumping uranium through filters and stuff. Uh, we were using 5% of all the electricity produced in the United States for that secret facility. And you can understand why we weren't going to say anything about that. And then during the war, electricity was at a premium. So 5% was a lot to be used in secret on one project. So the stealth aircraft was built at a cost of $10 billion over many years. You can't tell your friends without telling your enemies. People say, why don't they tell us? They don't need to tell the Russians. Well, if they tell the American people, the Russians will know, or anybody else for that matter. There's no way to separate that out. It's a free country, people talk, et cetera, et cetera. And especially when you don't have a solution, somebody says, well, okay, what do these guys want? We don't know. <laughs> you know? So it, it was a real conundrum for the government. And they had problems with where do we go from here? Also, we sometimes like to think, well, there is an, an alien race coming here. There may be 20 of them, for all we know, and they may have different agendas. They don't all look alike. You know, look, look at the guys going across the ocean after Columbus, from a bunch of different countries, 
all kinds of different reasons. You know, there's no simple-minded solution. What do these foreigners want? It depends on who you ask, you know, what's going on. So what I'm saying is I can understand the concern with secrecy. The Cold War, let me give you an example of why we were concerned about secrets. Uh, in 1948, General Leslie Groves, who headed the Manhattan Project to develop nuclear weapons, was asked, how soon before the Russians have it? In 48. Uh, and he hemmed and hawed, and well, they've had a terrible war, and blah, blah, blah. His best estimate was eight years. Nothing to worry about now. It took a little over a year before the Russians exploded their first A-bomb have a radar network around the country. There's nothing to worry about. We're invincible and vulnerable. They can't cross the ocean. And they don't have airplanes to deliver it. And then one May Day, there's a whole fleet of big planes. They copied a B-29 that we had left over there at Lend-Lee stuff. And they built a bunch of big airplanes. So suddenly you realize you really have to be careful here about what you tell the public and why don't you guess about what these characters want? Because there were sightings all over the world and many from pilots who said they outmaneuvered us all over the place. We couldn't win a battle with these guys in the sky. So this is not a curious situation of, oh, I wonder what those guys want, you know. It's not, not simple-minded like that. And are they going to working with somebody else on Earth against us? That's not a trivial question, you know, considering the times. So Flatwoods was just one case. And I was impressed with the people I talked to when I was there. I was impressed with the witnesses, the location. Uh, and it's unique in the description of the I'll call it the monster, because I don't know what else to call it. This big old thing that walked around, seemed to be mechanical, uh, but no communication. It didn't say, hey, uh, this is what I want, this is what we want, right? There, there was no evidence of what was going on. So Frank has done one heck of a job, Frank Fuscino, on digging out people who were witnesses and you know people say well why would they go to some small town in West Virginia come on there's nothing important going on there we don't know what might have been mined whether their sensors had picked up information uh, maybe, maybe they were doing a survey we really don't know and when you're ignorant you got to be careful what you say when you open your mouth 